For this episode, I invited Georgina Godwin to interview Margaret Van, and I want to use this introduction as an opportunity to talk to you about a free gift that is available to everyone in their path to, in your path to compound goodwill. And then I also want to read to you two poems that were prompted by my interactions with Margaret Van. But let's start with the gift. And the reason why it comes up in the context of Margaret is that uh, my conversations with Margaret, and especially the most recent one that I had, have been um, an extraordinary opportunity for me to witness somebody who's, at least to my eyes, mastered the art of listening. And I don't think that uh, it's been a rare occasion for me to be in the presence of somebody who listens with an open heart and a non-judgmental mind and who is capable of directing 100% of her attention onto me and what I have to say. Uh, and uh, it's an extraordinary thing because it made me realize how often, perhaps almost always, in conversation with somebody, uh, there's the desire to speak fast, perhaps, in order to get my message out before they interrupt me, or I have the feeling that they're listening just to get the opportunity to say what they want to say and that they're not really listening, which is something that I do an awful lot, comes up a lot in my conversation uh, with my wife, Laurie, and our children, but I'm certain it happens in other areas. And also without judgment, so listening not with the intent of saying something in response uh, and without judging what is being said and just hearing it. And the reason why I call it a gift is that it's an extraordinary gift to give someone that is free to give. It doesn't cost anything. All you have to do is focus your attention in a non-judgmental way on the speaker. And the reason why it's a gift is that you really feel when you're giving that, the recipient of that gift feels extraordinary. It's the way I've felt when I've talked to Margaret, and it's an extraordinarily rare thing. It should be far more frequent in the world, but it is actually something very rare. And I've talked mainly to interns and mentees, but also in my book and elsewhere, about the power of reciprocation and the opportunities that we have to do something for someone before we ever ask them for anything. And the question that arises for me often from interns and uh, people I'm mentoring is that they will say, well, Guy, I don't have anything to give. I'm so young and inexperienced and don't have wealth or power or wisdom. And what can I give to these people that I'm desperate to get in front of who have wealth, power, wisdom, and more? I have nothing. They have everything. And the answer to them is that there's so much within your power to give that is free. And uh, one of them is the power to listen. Uh, it's a way of appreciating somebody. And it has this wonderful quality that it does more than just make the world better in the moment and make the recipient of that gift feel special. It also is a way of healing the world. So it's a wonderful thing. It's an art that I haven't met anybody who's mastered it as well as Margaret has. And so I commend this conversation uh, between Margaret and Georgina to you, but not before I read to you two poems that have been inspired by Margaret and her 
uh, capacity to meditate and approach the world with conscious intent. And so the first poem is called The Guest House. And uh, it's by Rumi, who was a Sufi poet. And just to introduce you to the poem, the idea behind the poem is to separate, or the goal, I would say, is to separate uh, our feelings from who we are. And it started off in my conversation with Margaret, in which she kind of suggested that uh, we should think of an emotion that we have as a guest in our car, and uh, they don't get to sit in the driver's seat. That would be, let's say, the emotion of rage driving the situation. And they don't get to sit in the guest seat or in the, in the um, passenger seat in the front. But you do put them in the back of the seat and you strap them in and you allow that emotion to travel with you and acknowledge its presence. And I hope this doesn't detract from the poem, which I will now read. This human being is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And of course, his metaphor is not a car, but it's a home, but it's the same idea. And uh, I find that super inspiring. That's Rumi, the Persian poet. And uh, it brought up to my mind a poem from another Sufi Persian poet called Hafez, uh, which is as follows. We should make all spiritual talk simple today. God is trying to sell you something, but you don't want to buy it. That is what your suffering is, your fantastic haggling, your manic screaming over the price. And um, sometimes we just have to accept what's happening is perhaps a summary of that. But thank you for hearing my musings. And now to the conversation between Georgina Godwin and Margaret Van. Thank you very much for that introduction, Guy. And Margaret, what a pleasure to meet you finally. I've read about your life and now to actually have a conversation with you and uh, just explore some of that a little bit more is, is fascinating for me. Let's start in Hong Kong. That's where you were born. Tell me a little bit about your family. Well, the word refugee comes to mind first. My grandparents and my parents, they were born in China. My parents were born in Shanghai, but my grandparents were born somewhere else in China. And my parents, they both grew up in Shanghai in the 1930s. And between 1949 and 51, their respective families had to leave China and they chose to come to Hong Kong where I live now. And it was very, very hard, very difficult because you would think, oh, you know, they're just going to another part of China. But Hong Kong, 
was and still is a very different place than Shanghai. And so to them, it was as though they were moving to a foreign country. I cannot imagine what the earlier days were like for them because they didn't speak a word of Cantonese. And my father being the eldest son was very responsible and he felt that he needed to look after the entire family, all his siblings and even his uncles and aunts. So the extended network. And he met my mother in Hong Kong. I always told him how lucky he was. They've both passed away now. And I always told my dad, I said, wouldn't it be interesting to rewrite the family story if you had married somebody else? Because my mother was um, a very hardworking and capable woman. And the two of them built their business from scratch, which enabled all of us, all those uncles, aunts, grandparents, siblings, to stay afloat uh, in a foreign land. So I think I am who I am today, at least materially speaking, because of the hard work that they undertook. So I grew up in Hong Kong in the 60s and I have three siblings, I'm the youngest of four. And I left as a teenager to study in the US, just like my older siblings. And the rest was history, as in, because we all left at the age of 16, our lives became very westernized. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that says about your sense of identity, you know, feeling, I suppose, Shanghaiese, and then living in a Cantonese city, going, I, I believe you went to an Anglo-Chinese Catholic school, and then going to America. Who do you identify with? All the above and more. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it, I think when I was younger, I was having to make sense of it all. But now that I'm older, I feel very grateful that I've had a chance to get to know so many different cultures and languages. So to answer your question, I always feel that I'm straddling different cultures all the time. Mm -hmm. It used to be confusing, but now I embrace them all. And your parents' business was, was an export business. So presumably you came into contact with many other cultures beyond those with which you were intimately associated anyway. Yes. So I remember when I was young, my father would bring me and my siblings to a dinner, for example, with his clients from Germany or Finland. And they looked really strange to me. We couldn't communicate with one another because my English was poor. They didn't speak English or, yeah, they didn't even speak English. So uh, I'm talking about the client's kids who also came along. And I'm just fascinated with everything about them, the way they looked, the way they spoke, the way they moved. So I think that really planted a lot of seeds of curiosity in my young head, which probably 
was responsible for what I did next. Which was to steep yourself in languages. Yeah. So growing up in Hong Kong in a primarily Shanghainese household where my parents felt very, very proud of their identity, did not want to lose it in Hong Kong, maintained that I was Shanghainese first and foremost, even though I'd never been to Shanghai at that time and insisted that we all spoke to them in Shanghainese, which, which I never listened to beyond the household, beyond the family. And there was always a bit of confusion, you know, where I belong linguistically. Mm -hmm. And then I would step outside of my home to speak and listen to Cantonese and go to a school where I had to learn English from people who were also struggling with English <laughs> because they chose to teach, but their English was not fluent. I tried their best, but I, I didn't really learn English well when I was growing up. And because of my parents' work in export trading, I think my father had secretly wanted me and my sister, so we're two girls and two boys, and him being a very traditional man, allowed the girls to be interested in languages. And the boys had to be interested in male disciplines. So for him, it would be engineering was okay or maybe business, but certainly not languages. Yeah, yeah. So, and I feel very fortunate that I was born female in this lifetime, that I was allowed to love languages and learn them. So the languages that you studied, you studied French, Spanish, Japanese, Nepali and Norwegian. Those last two seem a bizarre addition. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a jill of all trades, mistress of none, for sure. But while I studied them, I took them seriously. I wanted to be able to become fluent because my objective had always been to communicate with people from all walks of life. I don't know how it came to be, but I had this intense desire. I remember one time walking behind a woman whom I knew was Japanese. I don't know how I knew, but I knew she was Japanese. And I felt very uncomfortable that I wasn't able to talk to her. So from then on, I said to myself, I really want to learn Japanese. And so I did when I was in university. I think that because my parents were in export trading, they really wanted me and my sister to be able to help out in communicating with their clients who were from all over the world, but particularly in Latin America at that time. My father really wanted us to become good at Spanish. And so I took Spanish when I was in university and I, I loved it. And I went to Latin America with him. I was a so-called interpreter, even though my Spanish was far from fluent but I tried and it was fun. But I, I think that that was the impetus uh, or one of them to want to learn all these languages. 
Now you went off on a on a trip to Nepal, which was to prove life changing, really. It was. It definitely was. I don't know if if you had ever experienced this, Georgina, but when I was in my early twenties, I experienced, for lack of a better word, stasis in my in my life. I just didn't feel like I was learning, even though I was at school. I needed something different. And I said to myself, where can I go and learn where life is really different? And it so happened that I found a study abroad program in Nepal. And that also gave me credit while I was there. That was a prerequisite really for my parents to say yes. And for the school to say, we will recognize this program when you come back and give you the credits for it. So I happily enrolled and to this day, I think that was the time when I learned the most about life. It was exponential learning because everything was so different. I mean, really I had to learn with my head on the floor. It was, it was everything was so new and I came away loving people in Nepal wondering why we didn't know anything about Nepal before I went and having immense respect for people there. So these days when I read the news about what's going on here and there, even though the news can be very sensational or negative, I always have that foundation, which comes from my own personal experience that says these are really good people. Mm. Now you love one person in particular who you met in Nepal. Yeah, it was, uh, it was karma, absolute karma. So my husband, your husband. Yeah. So I think he was also experiencing stasis, even that though that was not his label. And so he chose to enroll in the same program at the same time. And we met in Nepal on the same program on a bus and the rest was history. And, and yeah, it was just meant to be. I mean, we cannot be more different, but we're still together. <laughs> Tell me about Tom, he's from New Hampshire. Yeah, he's very much a New England boy, loves his apple pies, loves woodworking a la New England style, and cannot be more different than my upbringing, everything about his. Yet, I think there are a lot of commonalities, strange enough. And I would tell you something that you might not believe, which is that when I was about 19, I think, my father had my fortune told by a rather reputable fortune teller who was nicknamed the Iron Abacus. So he only needed three things he didn't even need to meet me. And the three things he needed were my name, my date of birth, and the time I was born. Those three things. And then he would write on a scroll of rice paper, you know, the Chinese scrolls that you roll horizontally. And he wrote my whole life story on the scroll. And towards the beginning, 
because he he wrote it chronologically, right? He would say, okay, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. And at that point, I hadn't been to Nepal yet. So he wrote that I would meet someone from afar, an alien. And this is how it's meant to be. And I majored in anthropology when I was in university and he also predicted that I would study alien cultures. That was meant to be. And everything else he said about me has so far turned out to be correct. Was there anything so, there that you were afraid of happening? <laughs> well, he, yeah, he was, he was good enough not to talk about negative things. He just cautioned, he would say, try not to travel on the, a day which has this number in it. Or try not to live at a house with this number. As opposed to saying this will this will happen to you when you turn, you know, this age. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, so he cautioned me to avoid certain things. But but that's this is why I use the word karma. It's because of this experience with the iron abacus that made me wonder, maybe there is so much more than meet the eye. You know, as scientific, as technologically advanced as we are, maybe there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to take you back now to, to, to the sort of timeline, if you like. You meet Tom, you also do a master's degree, and you have children, and you raise those kids. You're living in Vancouver, and then you move to Singapore. Yes. Uh, and then eventually, yeah. you go back to Hong Kong after, what, 30 years? After 33 years, yeah. And what have you yeah. been doing in the interim, raising your kids? Right. Yes. So the reason why I was in Canada was because of the 1997 repatriation of Hong Kong to China. And at that time, as you probably remember, a lot of people panicked and wanted to make sure that they had somewhere to go. So my parents took me under their wings in an application to migrate to Canada. I was the only one of their four children who was under age at that time. So I went under their application. And when I finished school in the US, they asked me, they said, what would you like to do now that you're done? Would you like to come back to Hong Kong or land in Canada? Because you have to land to present yourself as an immigrant in Canada. And I was really naive. I didn't know anything. I just said, no problem. I have a degree. I can go find a job. I'll go to Canada. So that's how I ended up in Canada. And then Tom also came up and we got married in Canada. Uh, that was in Ottawa because um, of what I studied, which was international development education. And Ottawa being the capital had the most agencies in that field, international development. But we didn't really like Ottawa. First of all, it was freezing all the time. So we decided to move to warmer Vancouver. The other reason why I liked Vancouver was its proximity to Asian cultures. So we ended up raising our family, starting our family in Vancouver. When our children were 10 and eight, Tom said, hey, do you want to uh, move to Singapore? And I jumped because I had been nagging him 
about moving back to Hong Kong all those years. I said, I really miss home. I really would love to move back to Hong Kong, but the opportunity never came about. So when he said the word Singapore, it was too good to be true. I left and I said, yes, I'm, I'm in. And the next thing you knew, we were in Singapore and our kids grew up pretty much from the age of eight and 10 to 16 and 18. It was a lovely environment, very safe for them to grow up there. And then fast forward 2013, Tom said, want to move back to Hong Kong? I said, sure. So, so here I am back in Hong Kong after 33 years. Now, your life really changed with the death of your parents. Tell us about so, that. Well, as, as those of us who are close to our parents can attest to, losing them can be very hard. And I was always very, very naive not really have had a lot of close experience with death. But when my mother fell ill in 2005, I also became ill with symptoms that I had never seen before in myself. So I was rather worried. I gather to be partially psychosomatic so I felt that I really needed a refuge. And when I was living in Singapore, a good friend asked if I had looked into mindfulness as a practice. I had heard of the word, but I knew nothing about it. So I respected my friend very much and I decided to look into it. And it just took me completely and before you knew it, I started to read up on it, everything that was printed about it. I took classes and then decided to become certified to teach it. So that's what I've been doing since then. It's, it's been quite a ride and a wonderful one. So now I really want to delve into exactly what mindfulness is, what branches of it you practice and teach, and how it can help all of us. How would you explain mindfulness to someone who had never heard of it? Well, I would say it's cultivating awareness in your everyday life. It can be from moment to moment. It can be from hour to hour. It is becoming curious about what you're experiencing in your body, in your thoughts, in your emotions, and learning to relate to those experiences, no matter what they're like, be they extremely pleasant, not so pleasant, or simply neutral. But having an interest in the whole shebang with the primary understanding that life is so precious, 
So let's take an interest in what it's all about. But I, I stress the word relate because it's really taught me to relate to myself, to my experience, and to everything and everyone around me in a, in a new way, in a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. Because it's not about judging whether those experiences are good or bad. It's about becoming interested in what they're all about. There are many different branches of mindfulness and, and your kind of specialization, I guess, is, 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 is around stress, stress reduction. Um, well, that's one course that I have been teaching, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, because that has been a very successfully marketed course in the mainstream society. But that is not the only course that I teach because as my teaching and practice evolve, I have also come to appreciate other ways to teach mindfulness. So for example, there's another course that I've been teaching called Awakening Joy. And I'm really, really attracted to the structure of that course because it's very accessible no matter who you are. And it also has a very liberal approach in terms of how you learn. It, it really leaves the adult learner to take in whatever they can, leave whatever doesn't resonate. And it's very freeing. So I have been spending a lot of time these days teaching that course. Yeah. Tell me then how, if you were to teach me to awaken my joy now, how would you... Uh, how would you begin? How, how, how can one do this? I think anyone who has an interest in having a deeper sense of awareness can help them uncover the inner sense of joy that's already within us. We can start there. It's merely a desire to find out what's inside and what's perhaps untapped and to discover what we are already capable of, but that because of a lot of conditioning and habitual tendencies that those capabilities have been buried. So it's, it's enabling them to surface again and it takes practice. So I'm just interested in, in how you actually do it, because saying to yourself, this is what I'm going to do clearly isn't enough, but you guide your pupils through it in a way. How do you do that? So normally, I think the, um, the most basic approach is, for example, using the breath as an anchor to train our awareness. And by looking at the breath, not as something that we take for granted because we do it all the time, as long as we're alive, but to look at it as something really precious because it enables us to be alive and to discover everything about our breath and how it relates to our state of mind. Our breath is not always the same, right? So having another sense of curiosity about the breath can be a very good way to tap in 
inward to see what is not on the surface and to find out perhaps that if I breathe like this, I feel a certain way too. And my body feels differently. But if I breathe more deeply or I exhale more deeply, my whole body actually relaxes much more readily. So to see how these things correlate with one another can be very interesting. But the problem I think is that there is a lack of patience in our society, particularly because we're so digitalized and everything has to happen right away. So I feel like it's almost a race against this very potent digital world that we're in that pulls us away from the ability to wait, to pause, to feel. Is there a religious element to this at all? A lot of people think that mindfulness is Buddhist. Well, it certainly has Buddhist roots philosophically, but I would say that there are all kinds of contemplative traditions in the world since time immemorial, and they have similar practices that require us to pause and listen and feel, right? So no, the answer is no, it's not a religious practice, but it is a practice that all of us, as long as we're human, can learn about and to find out what it means for us to be mindful. In terms of the people that you teach, I mean, we're talking about the digital world and how busy it is, but also what it has done, of course, is enable us to connect across continents just as we are doing now. Um, so can we access your teaching online? Yes, I have a, a website, Mindful Moment Hong Kong, and anybody who's interested can contact me. And I have been giving online classes because of COVID to people from all over the world, including Europe. And anybody who's interested can participate. And I also tailor my classes to people's specific interests, or maybe they have specific time requirements. Margaret, what's your next chapter? Carry on and let this evolve. I'd like to think that my own practice is evolving with my teaching. My practice informs my teaching and vice versa. So every day I'm a new person practicing and teaching. But more concretely, back to your question, one next chapter that I have embarked upon is writing my own memoir. And it, it starts from when I was born to the day my father passed away. So more or less 50 years of time. And it's really been rewarding because it has allowed me to recollect as much as I can and to make sense of 
the past and the present. I wish you all the very best of luck with it. And that website again, it's Mindful Moment Hong Kong. Uh, MindfulMomentHK.com. Margaret Van, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for your time, Georgina. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>